Welcome to Stories from Among the Stars. You're listening to The Last Watch by J.S. Dewis. Chapter 37 Cavallon sighed as he looked out across the black void. Static light sparked in thin lines in the not-distant-enough distance, illuminating the matte-black hull of the station in flashes of sharp white light. It was weirdly peaceful, like watching lightning flash across thunderheads as a storm rolled in off the sea. Except it was nothing quite so tedious as a thunderstorm. One good thing about being out on the hull with Rake was that he no longer sweat buckets out every pore, Instead, the sweat had chilled into a viscous film all over his bruised, aching, tired, beaten body, and his icy, wet clothes stuck to every part of him. Life was good. The discomfort proved a solid distraction from the fact that Rake had to pull him 30 meters to their destination, and the only thing they could tether to was each other. Though the whole excursion had yet to feel the proper amount of dire, Rake had been the picture of cool, calm, and collected as she palmed her way carefully across the surface toward the purge valve, making small, expert adjustments with her MMU, lugging him behind like a weightless anchor. The whole time she'd been telling him all about titan hazing rituals, he assumed for his benefit, but now he wasn't so sure. Wistful sighs and heavy silences cluttered her words and she'd lost her place and repeated the same bit a few times. Cavallon had just realized she might be the one who needed a distraction and intended to take over the task of storyteller when she let out a particularly resounding sigh and said, This is it. He looked up to where she hovered three meters above, or to the left. He cursed to himself as he realized he'd completely lost track of which way was up, or which way had been up when they'd exited through the access hatch, though he supposed it didn't really matter, so long as Rake knew where they were. Rake looked down at him, and the spotlight on her helmet blinded him briefly as it flashed across his face. She tugged on the tether, and his bruised stomach smarted as she pulled him toward her. The stupid harness hit in all the wrong places, and though it had hooks in a multitude of spots, along the back and the shoulders and chest and lots of less bruised places, Rake had insisted it needed to be as close to his center of gravity as possible. He'd moaned, but there is no gravity, like a petulant child, and she'd glared and grumbled back, well, you still have mass, and he'd scowled and said, oh, you think you're a scientist now? Then Jack and had hushed them, reminded them the divide sped toward them at thousands of kilometers a second, and could they be bothered to please shut up and go stop the universe from collapsing? Rake finished pulling him toward her, and Cavallon found himself hovering in front of a less than one meter wide circular breach in the otherwise pristine hull. He turned his helmet to aim his suit's light down the vent shaft, which descended deep into the structure, no end in sight. Charred and scorched metal lined the lip of the vent, the tubing within melted and warped. A bracket of sorts encircled the breach, a raised rectangle of thick bars around the vent's opening, likely the mounting that had once held the outlet cowl in place. Now it made a perfectly acceptable anchor point, and Rake busied herself, unhooking and 
rehooking their long tethers until they each linked to the bracket and no longer to each other. Cavallon watched in silence, his heart rate meter a golden yellow. A flash of static light illuminated Rake's face as she turned to stare at him through her visor, amber eyes expectant. Ready? A particularly violent bout of flashes made his pulse spike to red. Panic took over again, and it made him feel like an idiot. He'd wanted this, to be needed, to matter, and what he was about to do couldn't matter more, saving the universe-level shit. So why did he want to be anywhere but here right now? He took a breath and told himself it was a natural reaction. Utter annihilation from space and time rolled toward him, a slow wave of ultimate destruction. Who wouldn't be flustered? But what scared him even more was what it probably really was. Weakness. He wasn't cut out for this kind of shit. He could have an all but perfect memory, a ridiculous capacity to learn, maybe even some creative ingenuity, but that didn't give him any guts. Thoughts of guts made his real guts throb in pain, reminding him yet again of his bruised and beaten midsection. He'd been too weak to fight against that, too. Another onslaught of flashes startled him, and he craned his neck to look outward. They were getting closer. It was getting closer. He could feel it in his core. I did flirt with that recruitment officer, Riggs said suddenly. Cavallon turned to gape at her. Nothing happened, she assured him. But I did flirt, a little. He scoffed a laugh. I knew it. How'd that go? I want details. It was incredibly awkward, actually. She turned away, and he carefully removed the recoil paneling strapped to her back. Really? Kid Rake wasn't a smooth talker? Well, no, not really. But it wasn't that. She turned back around, and he passed her one panel, then laid the other down across half of the vent opening. He just wasn't interested in flirting with a beat-up kid. But he helped you anyway, he asked, as Rake passed him the plasma torch. Despite the awkwardness? Yeah, we became friends, actually. She kept the panel in place while Cavallon held the plasma torch to the seam, then clicked the ignition to light it, the arc caught in a rush of blue flame. We kept in touch for a long time, she continued. But he went MIA in the resurgence. Oh, sorry to hear that. He began to drag the tool along the first seam. What was his name? She let out a heavy breath. Circuitor Hudson Rake, though he eventually became a centurion. Uh, wait, what? It was the only way it could work. To get married? She laughed. Void, Mercer, no. He told them I was his niece. My papers got lost when my refugee ship got hijacked by drudgers on its way from the IE. I don't even know all the details of the story he told. Holy shit. He couldn't believe she was telling him this. Rake passed him the second panel, and he lined it up beside the first. You're not just making all this up, right? He asked, then started welding again. You're being for real? I'm being for real. So what's your actual... But he could no longer form words. His chest constricted, his throat closed, his bruised gut heaved. Without moving a centimeter, he felt like he'd been thrown off a three-meter ledge and slammed into the ground. His head spun from lack of air, 
Then in an instant, the wave ebbed and the pressure ceased. His vision reeled as he gasped for breath to fill his lungs again. Kev? Rake breathed, voice weak. What the fuck was that? He managed, breath equally labored. Rake stayed silent for a few long moments. I don't know. Let's hurry. Cavalon forced his trembling hand to remain steady as he dragged the plasma torch along the seam. He had to be quick, but he also had to be careful. Had to hold the flame long enough to form a solid bond, or it wouldn't be enough, and it wouldn't be a hermetic seal. And the station wouldn't start, and they'd die. And a lot of fucking other people would as well. This was one of those low-pressure situations in which he thrived. But this had to be it, right? The last leg on this ridiculous journey had to be. The only way out was through. Might as well focus it all into this moment or it could really be his last. Suddenly all the stupid shit he'd gotten all worked up about the last two days felt even stupider. Dumping Asium out of warheads and cutting it out of fuel lines, throwing doors at drudgers, and a walk in the park EVA compared to this one. Those were the days. Hours... Whatever, fuck, it had been a long day. He inhaled a wavering breath as he finished the seam between the two and moved on to the top. Three edges down, two to go. Griffith, you read me? Rake asked. Griffith's low rumble crackled on the comms. Go for Buck. You ready to do this? Ready on your mark. Just let me know when you're back inside and the hatch is sealed. Rake didn't respond for a few long seconds, and from his periphery, Cavallon could see her looking outward toward the static flashes. We're not going to be able to wait for that, she said. Rake, what? Jackin's voice cut through. We can't turn it on while you're still on the hull. Rake's haggard voice came back weirdly calm. I think you're going to have to. Strangely, a sense of warm serenity flushed through Cavallon. His heartbeat steadied so smooth it was almost imperceptible. Maybe he'd finally learned to control it, or maybe it had started going so fast it had melded into a singular, unending beat. He moved on to the last seam. For the next few seconds, he was vaguely aware of argument in the comms. Jack and Griffith didn't want to start it while they were still on the hole. Too dangerous. Who knew what could happen? Mesa said it might be fine, might be safe. What did Cavallon think? Cavallon thought nothing, because Cavallon's world was 50 centimeters long, built of aerosteel and plasmic fire. He knew nothing else. A moment later, dread overwhelmed him, a wrong, empty feeling, painful and dark. It was too familiar. A heavy, weighted heart, like when your dad dies. The fucking worst, a physical pain. How could a force of nature make him feel this way? That was all this was, right? The edge of the universe? Just science? Fuck that. It was here. He had to focus. His world was 30 centimeters. Then that first breathless feeling came again. Like the air had been punched out of him, he could sense it pulling him away. No, not pulling, falling. Forward started to become up, and he began to fall away, anchored at that pesky center of gravity, off the hull and outward, into the divide. He stretched forward, keeping the torch close to the metal, but he couldn't hold the tool steady and keep himself in place. He didn't have enough hands. However, 
He didn't need to ask for help, because Rake had already started moving. She kept hold of the bracket with one arm, then swung out behind him. She pressed her chest to his back and grabbed onto the other side of the bracket with her other hand, trapping him against the hole. He could continue. Ten centimeters. A shower of static light flooded his vision, and he had to squint to keep his place with the arc of the torch. On either side of him, Rake's hands vibrated, or the whole hull did, or Cavallon's head did. No, it was her. Her grip loosened, and one by one her fingers peeled away from the bar. The force of his whole body pressed against her, but she grunted and roared and somehow kept her grip. Done, he let off the plasma torch, which fell away over his shoulder. He immediately grabbed the bracket with both hands, using his imprints to pull himself forward, upward, and take the pressure off Rake. Do it now, Griffith, Rake barked. Are you in? That's an order. Shit. The comms cut away, and for an infinitesimal moment, peace. Silence. Just nothing. His world was zero. A nanosecond later, his heart fell into his gut. A horrifically loud noise told, one he knew couldn't exist in the vacuum of space, so he must have been making it up. Must have like the hollow twang of an enormous metal string being plucked. He could feel it as much as hear it. Then the outside rushed in and expanded like a thousand tiny balloons inflating inside him. It tried to diffuse him, pull him apart cell by cell, atom by atom. His breath fogged his visor, and though he couldn't hear it, he knew he'd started yelling, screaming, really. He thought Rake did, too. Her hands still held the bracket on either side of him, keeping him tucked into the hole. He held on, imprints clamping into his muscles to keep his grip, but he was suddenly unsure whether he was getting pulled away or pushed back in. The two forces battled, struggling against each other. The notifications in his visor had gone haywire, flashing every awful warning that had normally make his pulse race faster, but his heart rate monitor had disappeared. He figured it had moved past orange into red, then cruised right into infrared, so fast it was no longer in the visible light spectrum. Every other possible warning remained active. Breach imminent, loss of pressure, scrubbers offline, oxygen levels dropping, a dozen more. The suit's fleet of nanites had fully deployed, repairing apparent blunt force damage. Cavallon refocused his attention from the pointless slur of suit activity onto Rake's vibrating hands, because they were slowly being wrenched open. She was going to lose her grip. He kept an imprint-assisted iron hold on the bracket and craned his neck to look over his shoulder as the static light ceased and the pressure began to lift, because the divide had started to move back outward. It should have been a relief but it wasn't, not in the least because Rake was floating away along with it, falling. Whether he turned too late or it happened too fast to react to, he wasn't sure. He blamed himself either way. Her harness had ripped. He had no idea how. It floated off her back, torn at the shoulders. She twisted to grab it, but she'd gotten ahead of it somehow, and she couldn't reach it. She swiped at her MMU controls, but nothing happened. She was moving away faster than the tether, free-falling, careening. 
Cavallon spared the briefest moment to confirm his harness remained intact, then checked his own MMU. Nothing. No response. His visor's display still flickered in chaos, but his suit couldn't listen to him in its schizophrenic state. It'd have laughed at him if it could. Stupid request, stupid mortal. So he threw no sudden movements out the window and yanked Rake's empty tether and harness toward him. He pulled the broken harness free from the tether, then hooked it to his own hip. Double the tethers, double the chance of this working. Cavallon counted to himself as Rake floated away, then did the quickest math he'd ever done to calculate the force he'd need. Not too slow, because, well, that would be the most pathetic way to fail her ever, but not too fast, or it could break his harness when the tethers ran out. He turned and pressed his feet to the hull, then launched himself toward Rake. He felt pleasantly surprised with his apparent ability to translate math into real physical force, because it soon became apparent that he was slowly gaining on Rake. At least it had been fast enough. Maybe too fast, but only slightly so. A handful of terrifying seconds later, he caught up with her. He reached out and closed his arms around her shoulders as he clunked into her. She sped up along with him. Can you read me, sir? Fucking void, Mercer, she cursed. Said a yes? Listen, what did you do that for? Rake, fuck, just let me save you. Void, you need to have a good hold on me, he insisted. All the strength your imprints can muster. She let out a sharp breath. I'll use mine too, he continued. But when these tethers run out, we're gonna snap back pretty hard. The divide's pulling us and the generator's pushing us. We're riding a wave. There'll be quite a bit of force at the end of the line. If we don't have a good hold on each other, I might lose you. If the tethers don't break and we don't both go careening off into the divide, right. Rake sighed, then shifted to wrap her arms loosely around his chest. They stared back at the impressive, looming station as they drifted away. The edges glowed as if the opposite side had lit up, basked in a soft white light. How long are these tethers? He asked. Fifty meters? He swallowed hard. For a few silent seconds, they watched the expanse between them and the station slowly grow. Again, it felt weirdly peaceful. He could do nothing but wait. The slower Cavallon's pulse became, the more his body began to ache. Not only his already injured guts, but everything. Everywhere. Organs, skin, muscles, hair. His head throbbed, and a constant, onerous thrum reverberated in his ears. His stomach roiled with that same unnerving nausea that had launched him into his vomiting episode on his last EVA. However, this time he wasn't sure he'd be throwing up the contents of his stomach. Any organ from the neck down felt like fair game. Rake? Cav? Can I ask you something? Go ahead. Do... He took a long, deep breath. Do you think they gave us superpowers? Rake let out a breathy scoff and didn't respond at first. After a few seconds, she said, Probably. I always thought x-ray vision would be great. How about you? Invisibility. Oh, good one. Although teleportation would be great about now. He gave a short laugh, heartier than he thought he had in him. The station continued to drift away, and the slack in the tethers started to disappear. I think my eardrums are bleeding, he said.
mine too. And maybe most of my internal organs. Calf. I know. He watched as the snaking tethers grew totter. This is going to hurt you. He shook his head, clunking his helmet awkwardly into hers. Don't worry about that. I'll be fine. Hold on as tight as you can. She didn't respond and his stomach churned with unease. He could see it now. The tethers seconds from running out and Rake lets go to save him. She waves goodbye and wishes him luck and tells him to take care of Griffith and Jackin as she floats back into the divide. Fucking typical. Rake, I can handle it, he said seriously. Promise me you'll hold on. He craned his neck until he could see through the side of his visor and into hers. Her eyes were cast down, sweat beating on her forehead, cheeks flushed. Or I'm never building a star for you again, he threatened. The muscles in her jaw flexed a few times before she responded. Yeah, okay, I promise. Cavallon looked up as the tethers drew straighter, then summoned his imprints to strengthen his grip and protect his stomach. He locked his arms around Rake's back, and she closed hers tightly around his torso. And that hurt, sure, sent lances of pain throughout his whole body. Yet it was nothing compared to what came next. The tethers snapped taut, and the harness yanked hard on his midsection as their full weight tugged back against it. Every muscle in his torso seized in reaction, clamping down on his internal organs in a surge of agonizing torment. As his stomach drew forward, the momentum flung Rake, slinging her around on his back. She managed to keep hold of him, arms locked around his chest. The pain quickly proved too much. His head swam, thick and murky. A bile-heavy lump grew in his throat and his vision faltered. The star-strewn inward view smeared into muddy gray as his eyes welled with hot tears. He could barely make out the hall lights of the SGL rounding the side of the station before he passed out. Chapter 38 Adequin laid Cavallon's unconscious body on the floor just inside the doors of the bronze sphere chamber. She knelt beside him, then tore off her helmet and tossed it aside. A rush of heat baked her clammy, chilled skin. She pulled his helmet off and pressed her fingers under his jaw, searching for a pulse. Her suit's HUD had began to function again on their short jaunt back on the SGL, and it had promised her he was fine. Breathing steady, pulse strong, so she told herself he would be okay. He had to be. He was tougher than he thought he was. But he looked downright awful. His pallid skin slick with sweat, the color gone from his cheeks. Dark bags hung below his eyes, and even unconscious, he looked utterly exhausted. Adequin, on the other hand, felt strangely great, her heart beat fast but light, refreshed, invigorated. Every part of her throbbed horribly, but her chest felt airy, like she could finally take a breath again after being underwater for so long. A weight had been lifted that she hadn't realized was crushing her. She'd met the edge of the universe head on and survived. They'd mounted a defense, the enemy had retreated, and they'd won the day. 
Puck knelt on the other side of Cavallon. What happened? He just passed out from pain. Adequin breathed a groan as she stood. He should be fine. Jackin handed Puck a bio-tool, and the circuiter injected it into Cavallon's neck. Moments later, his eyes slid open. He tried to sit up, but Puck laid a hand on his chest to stop him. You did it, boss, Jackin said quietly, gripping Adequin's shoulder. She leveled a flat look at him, and he raised his hands in submission. Sorry, we did it. What did we do exactly? She asked, did you check the atlas? Yeah, it's better than we thought. It not only stopped it from getting closer, but pushed back. Seems to have settled about 500,000 kilometers outward. Other sections are still moving inward, but they've slowed. They won't get nearly as far as quickly now that this one's active. And the typhus? They should be safe, he assured, for now. Exubiter. Mesa's voice cut through, so heavy with anguish that Adequin's chest seized. She looked across the room toward the savant, who sat crouched beside Griffith, lying on the ground beside the mainframe interface terminal. Everything else fell away, vacating her mind completely as she crossed the room and slid to her knees beside him. He grimaced, eyes clamped shut, breaths coming in shallow gasps. His brown skin glistened with sweat, wrinkles deeper than ever. Silver and copper imprints flickered around his arms of their own accord, seeming unsure of what to do. Mesa disappeared from her periphery. Griff. Hey. He peeled his eyes open. The color of his irises had faded to a muted brown. It worked, huh? She nodded. Yeah, it worked. He let out a short burst of breath, then with an effort, found his voice again. You were right, that thing fucking hurt. You'll be okay. He grimaced, his voice a crackling, dry rumble. This is it, Quinn. No, yes. She shook her head. I can't do this without you. He gave her a weary half grin, and the corners of his eyes wrinkled. You've been doing it without me for years. She laid her head into the crook of his neck, and he wrapped his arms around her. His imprints buzzed lightly as they trembled along his skin. I'm sorry for that, by the way, he rumbled. I should have been there for you. She opened her mouth to refute it, he shouldn't have regrets, but the words caught in her throat. I know it might not feel important right now, he said, but I do forgive you for what happened on Paxus. A hard pressure grew in her chest. You did what you thought was right, he continued. You always do, and I've always trusted that wisdom as a matter of course, relied on it even. It'll have been the right call in the end. I know it. It's what you do. She squeezed his hand harder, but his grip on her continued to slacken. He hacked out a few short, weak coughs, wheezing as he drew in a constrained breath. 
You said one act doesn't define us. And you're right. One doesn't. But this choice you made, to stay here, to save the typhus, it's decisive, Quinn. And where you decide to go from here will matter just as much. With every word, his voice grew thinner, each syllable requiring a force of will. So, do me a favor, he continued. And go make a fucking ton more of these decisions, so it does define you, so it has to. Be the Quinn whose shadow I couldn't escape, even all the way out to the edge of the collapsing universe. She nodded as a tear trailed to the tip of her nose. Griffith wiped it away with a trembling thumb. I'm sorry, Quinn. I guess you're gonna have to grow old without me after all. A jolt of pain fired under her ribs, stifling her breath. More hot tears stained her cheeks. Promise me you will, though, he breathed. Grow old, I mean, wherever this leads. Just find a way to live. She swallowed, nodding as she looked back up. One more favor, he asked. Anything. Punch Lujan for me. She let out an effusive, pained laugh. Gladly. His tone fell serious again. And maybe find a thunderstorm. She managed a nod. Copy that, Centurion. Salty sweat and tears mingled as she pressed her lips into his, then breathed, a fetus fortis. He let out a withering sigh. A fetus fortis, Moacare. Griffith's eyes closed. The imprints jittering on his arms slowed, then shuddered before coming to a rest. Adequin laid her forehead on his chest and closed her eyes. She waited for his chest to rise again, waited to hear his breath catch, waited to feel his heart thud against his ribcage. Just waited. Because this wasn't it, it couldn't be. They had a lifetime ahead of them. That's how she justified it all, not telling him how she felt, Letting him captain the Tempest, all the time apart that could have been together. Something better would come after the Argus, and they'd do it together. They just had to be patient. So she kept her eyes clamped shut and waited. She didn't know for how long. Seconds that could have been minutes, that could have been eons. She waited. Soon it had been too long, and she knew it was over. But the grief she thought would overwhelm her never came. Because how fucking long had she been waiting? Waiting for orders, waiting for permission, waiting for requests, waiting for the divide to swallow them whole. And waiting since Paxus for the other fucking shoe to drop. Because it was never going to be that easy. She'd known that from day one. She'd defied an order. Didn't pull the trigger, didn't tie a nice tidy bow on their war and pass them their consummate victory on a silver platter. 
A promotion and a safe, easy post wasn't a punishment. For five years, she waited for the real one, the one she needed, so she could rectify her guilt. With sharp, bittersweet relief, she realized it had finally come. It was over. She'd found the real punishment and could move on, if she could find a way. She opened her eyes and lifted her head. Sweat dripped down her temples. She had a vague awareness of Jackin in her periphery, crouched beside her. She found Griffith's dog tags tucked between his shirt and chest. A chest that didn't raise or lower, didn't move, just sat perfectly still. She ran her fingers along the etched metal and glass pendants. Antiquated, like everything else issued to the Sentinels. Too much effort or expense to maintain a chip database for soldiers they'd already written off as dead. She unhooked the chain, then closed the clasp around her own neck, tucking them under her sweaty shirt along with her own. She turned to look at Jackin, his brow creased deep with worry. He laid a hand on her shoulder. Rake, I'm so sorry. She stood and passed him to stand in front of the wide glass window. Crossing her arms, she watched their mini star churn and spin, reflecting brilliantly off the metallic panels lining the interior sphere. Jackin approached, hovering off her shoulder. Rake, he began, then cleared the hesitation from his throat. Are you okay? She didn't respond. She couldn't yet. Her mind reeled, searching for an explanation for the point of it all. Why was she here, now, like this? That same thought had gnawed at the back of her mind for years. She was as far removed as one could get, lingering on the edge of the universe. A universe that had tried its very hardest to end its own existence despite them. There had to be a reason. Griffith didn't die for nothing. Maybe that day on Paxis, she'd been part of something bigger than she'd realized. When the Legion's best, most trustworthy, most brainwashed soldiers started to recognize they could make decisions for themselves, what do you do? You cut it off at the head. You make a new plan, out with the old, find a new army, one that'll listen, one that has to listen. The Legion brass could have been playing ahead of it for years, quashing a rebellion that hadn't even happened yet. Some of the offenses she'd seen on intake paperwork had been flimsy at best. Warner, when stationed in a remote system in the perimeter veil, had worked off-duty hours helping a settlement install shield walls to keep out the ravenous local fauna. Puck's little thruster hack aboard the SCS Somnium had been in an attempt to catch up to a drudger cruiser that had taken a half dozen core-bound IE refugee ships hostage. Technically, they'd defied orders, but come on. Maybe they weren't just sending the Sentinels all their criminals and miscreants, but those most likely to rebel. Those that had proven themselves capable of defiance. If the SC truly had started the resurgence to silence a fledgling uprising from the citizenry, why not this too? There was more to it than that, though, 
and she couldn't shake the feeling it was all related. Connected, it had to be. She could already see the headlines that'd roll in from the core. Legion tragedy at the Divide. Sentinel forces lost in horrific accident. New Legion Personnel Welfare Act proves worth. Thank the Void for Augustus Mercer's amazing fucking foresight. Cavallon was right. The more one man consolidated power, the less the SC looked like the Republic it was intended to be. That it should be, that humanity deserved. This was all part of that longer game, and even out on the fringes of nothing, they were pawns in it. Despite the exhaustive list of implications, the part that made her stomach churn and bile creep up her throat was the possibility that they knew. That the Legion, or the Quorum, or the Allied Monarchies, or all of the above knew. Knew these stations were the Viator's responsibility. Knew they'd fall into disrepair once they were gone. That they'd been counting on the Sentinels to die, so they could use it as part of their propaganda. And the worst of it, what if Lujin knew? He hadn't been able to look her in the eye when she'd left his office that day. Did he know about it even then? He had Omega clearance. He should have known everything there was to know about the Legion and the SC. He'd have known about the LPWA and the cloned Drudger Army and how easy it'd be to sacrifice the Sentinels to make a point. Who knew what dark secrets he'd shared over tea time with fucking Augustus Mercer? Her face heated, and she took a deep breath that quavered in her throat. She knew she was spiraling, that she'd thrown logic out the window. She had no proof of any of this. Except that sinking feeling in her gut that always told her when she was right. That was the recruitment officer that would finally help her. She'd thrive if she joined the Titans. Paxis was the right planet. Let the breeder go, fix the beacon. She might be wrong, or she might be right, but it didn't matter anymore. What was done was done. Griffith was gone, and it was time to stop waiting. After a few silent minutes, Jackin spoke up again, his voice quiet and worried. What are you thinking, boss? Adequin continued to stare at the blinding ball of gas that there are still thousands of sentinels that need saving. He said nothing for a long time, then stepped up beside her, arms crossed, shoulders hunched. Rake, he whispered. What about Lujan's orders? She glared. You think we're going to relay back to the Corps, get a round of honorable discharges and go home? They clearly wanted us gone, Jack. Our survival will be considered at best a nuisance. Jackin scoffed. I can't really disagree with you there. But what can they really do once we're back? Court-martial us? Again? Send us back out to the Divide? She shook her head. No. His scowl drifted to Griffith. The ire left his voice, and his tone became serious as he looked back at her. You really don't think it's safe to go back to the core? Not yet. Adequin looked over her shoulder toward the doorway, where Puck helped Cavallon stand. His brow furrowed with pain, but his face had flushed with color. 
He leaned on Puck's arm as he found his footing, then looked up and locked eyes with Adequin. She inclined her head. They might have a dictator on their hands, sooner rather than later, one who's already trying to replace us. Cavallon slicked his sweaty hair out of his face, and he nodded his agreement. That's very true. Jackin let out a sharp sigh. Okay, fine. You want to muster a force? Gather the sentinels? How the hell are we even going to begin to do that? All the gates at the divide are off, except Karin. We can't go anywhere but inward. Puck fixed Karin, Adequin said. So we helped the Typhos fix Zealous, then the Akora with Eris, and so on. Jackin flexed his jaw, but gave a short nod. Okay, so let's say that works, then what? We'd only have a handful of Hermes between us, which we can't even take through the gates. And regardless, the second we try to take a single ship through, the Legion will know we're still alive and come after us. How are we gonna get everyone to safety without showing our hand? Mesa, Adequin turned to the savant. She stood beside Puck, wringing her thin hands nervously. Yes, Exubiter. Can you reverse engineer this technology? The reactor, I mean? Mesa's brow raised. Yes. Well, I would need some. She turned her look to Cavallon. After staring down at his boots for a few long seconds, he gave a quick nod. Mesa inclined her head, then turned back to Adequin. Yes, Exubiter. Jack? Yeah, boss. What's the Typhus's maximum personnel capacity? He blew out a long breath. I don't remember its make, but it was a capital ship. Maybe 10,000? Does it still have its jump drive? His exasperated grimace softened. Then he exchanged a questioning glance with Puck. It's at least a hundred years older than the Argus, so yeah. I don't think they would have repurposed it, but it'd still need solar power to charge. His words died in his throat as his gaze fell on the window, onto the collapsing mass they created, and his face fell slack. Cav? Adequin asked. Yeah. Are you with us? Yeah, I'm with you. She raised an eyebrow, surprised by his lack of hesitation. He stood unaided, clutching his stomach in one arm, trying to hide his pain under a look of steadfast determination. Were you serious when you suggested putting this thing on a ship? She asked. He blinked in surprise. Well, not just any ship. Not the SGL or the Synthesis, if that's what you mean. Could you build one into a capital ship? His mouth gaped open. Uh, he stared past her, through the glass into the containment chamber, then threw a look to the terminal, then the atlas, then Mesa. He scratched the back of his neck. A few moments later, he looked up, swallowed hard, and nodded. I'll need resources. Of course. And manpower. Certainly. And time. She waited. The corner of his mouth pulled up. I can do it. She tried to give him a grateful smile, but her face wouldn't listen. 
It wanted her to scowl, to grit her teeth, to glower in defiance. Cavallon grinned in response. Adequin turned to face Jackin. His worry had faded, his brow smooth, dark brown eyes wide and clear. He now looked anxiously impressed. What do you think, Jack? She asked quietly. Want to be a CNO again? He didn't respond at first, pressing a hand to his forehead. She lowered her voice to a whisper. I don't know what's going on with you and the Mercers, but if you have some vengeance to pay the king, this could be your chance. Rake, void, he breathed. That's mutiny. I know. He turned to stare back at where Griffith lay, and his hardened features softened. She swallowed down a lump, praying to the void that Jackin would be on board. She needed him. After a minute, his hand dropped away and he gave a deep sigh. Just tell me the plan, boss. First, we save the Sentinels. Adequin let out a long, heavy breath. Then we take the fight to the core. This has been the final episode of The Last Watch by J.S. Dewis. Stick around for a special bonus conversation in which the author and editor discuss the audiobook. And don't forget to follow Stories from Among the Stars on your preferred podcast app to stay updated about new seasons. Thanks for listening.